to In Conversation, the regular podcast of Encompass. Go to encompass-europe.com for free access to all our podcasts to date. This is Paul Adamson, and I'm in conversation with Professor Amelia Hatfield. Amelia Hatfield is the head of the Department of Politics and director of the Centre for Britain and Europe at the University of Surrey. Uh, Amelia, we're going to talk about something I know which is very close to your heart and a rather neglected area in the, in the Brexit debate, namely the whole issue of UK foreign and security policy post-Brexit. I think we, you and I both agree that the debate maybe has been over-dominated maybe until now about the economics of Brexit and even now as we move into the phase two, potentially phase two part of the whole Brexit saga, even then we're talking about trade relations and, and those kind of matters. So I'm curious to know your, your take on the foreign security policy uh, aspect. First of all, do you think that the, the, the powers that be, certainly on the UK government side, are paying sufficient attention to this whole issue of foreign security policy in a, in a potential post-Brexit world? No, I don't think they've given it um, a clear and even a short-term um, consideration, quite apart from a long-term consideration. You're quite right that I think trade has dominated for the most part, um, and that's obviously to try to square away the economic and financial relationship that Britain is naturally going to have with the European Union. Uh, but that's wound up being rather more difficult and rather more protracted perhaps than anybody could have guessed, although anybody who's a trade expert might have said, well, I could have told you that. And as a result, I think some major topics have just literally fallen off the table. They've fallen off the agenda. Um, I think internal security has fallen away. We, we can talk about that. But I think rather more worryingly, the concept of um, Britain's current relationship with the common foreign and security policy, the CFSP, right. which is the shared foreign policy blueprint, if you like, that the European Union has been uh, working on for many, many years. There's not a great clarity as to where Britain wants to um, remain or steer itself within that one. And the, and the second one, the sort of sister policy, if you like, is the Common Security and Defence Policy, CSDP. Um, the, the first one is the sort of where, where does Europe sit in the world and, and how, how does Britain want to um, forge a relationship with the European Union on the basis of that. And the second one re really is a combination of hard and soft power, um, so ops um, overseas. Now, Britain, of course... I think specialises in, in both of these, possibly in a way that um, the British public is unaware of. It has always been a security and defence leader. It's always been a, you know, a diplomatic mm -hmm. leader. And the European Union has done very, very well as a result of British expertise. Again, it's a shame that that wasn't flagged up as a key narrative in the agenda, the, the idea of, of British contributions, British leadership, British pioneering. Um, and it's a little bit late now. Um, so the, the question at this point, therefore, for decision makers, for uh, for lecturers, for students, for citizens as a whole, is how close um, does Britain want to be with regards to the European Union in terms of foreign policy? Well, many critics of the UK's uh, engagement with Europe uh, as a full member, as it still is, uh, would say that um, it, it may maybe up to maybe talk the talk, maybe not necessarily walk the walk, in the sense that CFSFP and CSDP, as much as I understand these these areas of policy, have not been given maybe enthusiastic support by the UK historically. And so therefore, this now, this position where we're not sure about the UK's position in a potential post-Brexit world is simply a reflection of their, their kind of lack of enthusiasm historically or not? No, I think that's an excellent point. I don't think Britain uh, as, as a whole, as a member state actually, has done particularly well, ironically, in Britain, uh, saying, 
standing and uh, raising the, the, the flag for itself along with the European Union flag and saying actually we're a full and contributory member along with the other 27 member states and actually along with France, if you go back far enough to 1998, really launching the CSDP. It was the, it was the full um, author of that. Um, so that, that narrative has not been um, reflected back in a historical way. It's not part of the sort of national understanding that you get in Britain, that Britain has um, a, a, a long and decidedly positive relationship with the European Union on foreign security um, terms. And then, so I think as a result, we haven't seen it on the agenda. Um, and it's, it's going to be something, um, I think, of a real exercise, um, trying to either remind you know, the British public that it is important that Britain tries to cultivate some kind of relationship with the European Union, and more broadly that the EU is, is going to be needed for Britain in terms of where it goes um, outside of the continent of Europe in, in the medium and long term. Right. Well, as you know, as well as I do, especially now in this election campaign, uh, sort of fever we're all going through, that there's a lot of ambiguity and, uh, about the UK's position more broadly. And this whole issue, I know you've written and spoken about it extensively, of global Britain um, and the extent to which that that is a kind of substitute for, uh, a serious substitute for, uh, of a foreign policy uh, uh, vocation in this potential post-Brexit world. So what is, what is your views of the, the government's uh, positioning of this new global, global Britain? It's a good question. I'll have to suggest a spectrum of responses okay. because <laughs> I think if I'm if I'm really sort of quite critical of it, it's it's very late coming, very late in the day. It seems to be, um, as I would refer to it, a bit of a fridge magnet. It just seems to be something <laughs> of a snapshot with a, not a whole lot of substance. If I'm a bit more generous, perhaps what it is attempting to do is to reset. Uh, British foreign policy um, requirements and interests, if you like, um, in a way that I think seems to distance itself from Europe on the one hand right. and push open the door to a big, exciting new um, right. global Britain beyond or even circumventing Europe on the other. So it's it's laced with phrases of entrepreneurialism and, and exciting and un, untrammeled boundaries <laughs> and free trade and all the rest of it. Um, and I, I, first of all, find the language uh, slightly creaky um, yeah. and difficult, kind of difficult to follow and because as the foreign affairs committee um, of, the, of the commons made very very clear uh, there's no funding there's just no um, clear detailed understanding right. in the short medium and long term so it, even for them it looks like sloganeering at best well sloganeering at best and I must get must buy this fridge magnet if I can find one um, <laughs> but more seriously um, Britain to be fair the UK does pride itself and, and justifiably so I think most people would agree even its staunchest critics about its commitment for example to development policy development aid and, and showing leadership in, in that broad area is that mm. going to carry on do you think un, unchanged in this new world that we might be entering I think it depends entirely um, on the uh, the geometry if you like how close to the centre does Britain want to play its foreign policy future Right. And I think there are three options here. Number one, of course, try to maintain from uh, the current perspective a closely aligned, uh, virtually integrated relationship with the European Union while not being a member state, right. which is going to be tricky. The second one is sort of halfway house, a sort of mid-range option uh, where they, they opt back in on the basis um, of a sort of goodness of fit. It, it aligns with what the European Union wants to do, and that coincides with British interests. So the sort of pay-to-play pay option, but slightly right. more sporadic. And the one I think with the widest amount of distance between the centre and the periphery is perhaps global Britain itself, the idea that, that Britain wants to be sole 
and much more autonomous in terms of de uh, determining its strategic boundaries, its strategic autonomy, um, where it would not call up Brussels necessarily. Right. Um, it would be ringing around elsewhere. It looks like it would have to recraft uh, either bilateral relationships with European states, um, ex-EU, um, or really seek a whole new series of relationships based on free trade, based on development, as you mentioned. Right. Um, perhaps Making trade more political or more I, part of a tool of foreign policy. I do feel that may happen, actually, having looked at the way in which development as a whole seems to be not just redefined uh, quite far away from the original point of, of uh, poverty um, alleviation, uh, but the idea that how you reach that 0.7% of GDP commitment mm. now seems to be rather colourfully um, understood in terms of accounting. Literally, you can chuck anything in the development budget, right. even security, even trade. So there's a shift, I think, in terms of the formula of what equates to development. For Britain, perhaps, I mean, maybe this will be seen as a, as a positive, um, as, as a benefit. Mm. We, can, we can continue to be a big development actor in the world, but it will require us to recalibrate how we count up our development money. On the other hand, I think that's not what development means. That's mm. certainly not how the European Union originally defined it, although if I'm absolutely honest, I think even their definition has begun to change. So Britain will have to figure out whether development is a, is, is a strong avenue of foreign policy. It wants to lead from the front on this, or whether it's simply one of a number of foreign policy tools. In, in the current state of the, of the Brexit negotiations and, and all the commentariat around it, there's a lot, a lot of talk, as you know, about, about the potential or the possibility of the UK becoming a kind of Singapore on terms in economic terms. And when we talk about the single market and access to it or whatever, it's all about levels of level playing field. Um, and, and apparently the U27 are generally concerned that, that they have on their doorstep post-Brexit this kind of economic competitor without trying to get into an overstatement but do you think there's a, a potential and, and a threat and a danger of in the foreign policy world and security world also a sense of competition that the UK will be competing with the U27 in, in the foreign security world as well? I, th I think that's a, that's a great comment. I think just, just in terms of sort of access to market the, the key concern of course is the race to the bottom the sort of deregulated yeah, island that yeah. can do literally anything it likes but I think you know I think that rationale holds true also in foreign policy it's not just foreign economic policy so in as much as the United States regards the UK as a conduit to European Union markets obviously yeah. I think in terms of, of a sort of security and defense competitor th th there may be some real issues there um, I think France and Germany moved very swiftly right after the referendum really within weeks and months to start kind of rebuilding or filling in the holes if you like left by Britain um, in terms of its deep anxieties about putting together a European defense agency and European defense funding that that's leapt ahead I don't know if a whole lot of people have sort of noticed that but yeah. Europe is now leaps and bounds ahead in in the in the months and years since the referendum is that a reaction though to interrupt you is that a reaction though to as a kind of alarm call and faced with the possibility or the imminence of a UK departure or on the contrary that well, they would want to do it for a long time and now finally on the back of the UK departure they these other countries can get on with it I hate to give you the academic answer but it's both all right okay, <laughs> I think fine. it was initially already the direction of travel I think things like PESCO which predate the referendum PESCO being PESCO being the permanent enhanced security cooperation the idea that that um, if you like um, forging ahead a little faster than other countries in terms of security and defense, you, you basically put together a security and defense club. Yeah. It, it's really for those that have very high capabilities and are committed to higher degrees of spending and perhaps researching um, on defense. Um, but it's amazing that what was supposed to be probably a small club um, surrounded by a circle of outsiders actually has basically incorporated the Everybody. entire European <laughs> Union. So yeah. that's very nonsense. <laughs> Self-selecting club is not quite perhaps what they had in mind. But beyond that, I think um, what it what has 
has changed. I, th I think I think Brexit has been viewed as, um, as 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 catalytic from the from within the European Union. I think they have thought, well, we're not going to be we're not going to sit around and just wait. Let's move, particularly between France and Germany. Um, let's try to build um, research between security and defense. Let's have a discrete fund. And also the fact that it's becoming more and more supranational in terms of its decision making. It's, um, it's, it's interesting that the commission now seems to have just as much say over um, defense spending and defense strategies um, as, as, as does the intergovernmental um, councils and committees in the member states. So that, for those of us who are Brussels watchers, that mm. shift, that needle, I think, suggests that Europe, the European Union is beginning to centralize, right. slowly, but certainly centralize, um, security and defense. What will be interesting is whether its own policies can pick that up. Where, where will we see that impact? In, in a renewed CFSP, in a better bridge building between CFSP and, and ops, CSDP? And the, the follow-up question to that, obviously, was, well, where's Britain in this? Yeah. My sense is it'll do a buy-in. It'll probably try to opt back in. It will see ops that it thinks we can lead on this. We have, uh, you, know, right. you know, naval security, for example. The, there are obvious areas where, where British security and defence um, has such a, a lead ahead of its European counterparts yeah. that it doesn't make sense to keep it out. At the same time, I mean, I, I think I think the the feeling in Europe will be, well, why should we? To some extent, they they elected to leave, and now they want to sort of opt back in. So I can understand there may be initial yeah. reluctance. <laughs> Well, this is this ambiguity and confusion on the UK side, up to a point maybe, uh, inevitably, is slightly mirrored maybe on the E27 side. And you're talking about, yes, you know, the E27 having to take steps to, to, to take account of the new post-Brexit world we're going to be living in potentially, uh, and uh, and the potential maybe for these opt-ins. But also, as you know much better than I do, Emmanuel Macron is, is full, of, full of ideas. He's talking about this thing called the European Intervention Initiative. He's talking also about the European Security Council, both which would have or would, would have UK participation and membership, right? So it's almost as if they, the EU also wants to, up to a point, you know, bring back the UK into the fold. It's interesting. Two things seem to be happening at the same time. There's sort of a, there's a tightening of security and defence architecture within the club itself, within the European Union. Yeah. But there's also clearly a loosening as well. I mean, PESCO itself is effectively based on the idea that you can, you can opt in from within the European Union. And the CSDP, let's remember, allows, you know, non-EU member states and has for years the Americans would never have let it fly otherwise mm. so there are there are areas I think that are uh, allow a lovely balance if you like between sort of exquisitely European Union only and then a sort of opt-in um, formula as well and for the Brits this might be very very helpful I think the intervention initiative is is an attempt by 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 France in particular to hold the door open right. for the Brits and say, well, who among us, uh, you know, beyond Britain and France, really is probably going to make best material use of this? Yeah. So let's do that. The the idea of the sort of European Security um, Council, I I don't know. I find that a bit of a double-edged sword. It it might be great because it will allow different national voices to clarify the way in which they see overall European security and defence. But it is somewhat at odds with the common formula, i.e. CFSP and CSDP, um, and the whole point of making you know, policy, including foreign policy, in common. Um, is that of course Europe is a continent based on the you know the, the idea of peace and, and, and trying to work together to transcend national identities to transcend sovereignty yeah. and again just sort of harking back to the initial philosophies of the of the founding uh, members back in the 50s and 60s I think I think they would be very uneasy at, at some of the motivations behind a, a European only Security Council. I, I've heard you say recently that um, Brexit is widely interpreted as a 
quote-unquote a total withdrawal from multilateralism I'm sure the UK would be sort of horrified the UK government would be horrified by that assertion they say well we're still full members I'm quite leading members of NATO we're on the permanent you know, security council permanent members thereof we are taking leadership role in, in the COP process of climate change and so on and so on and so on so I need, I need you to kind of defend that assertion mm. Amelia I think speaking to a number of people particularly from the United Nations there right. is a sense um, that at, at this present time, uh, Britain's commitment specifically to being not just in the UN, but a European member, not just a European Union member, just a European member right, of the UN right. has been seriously diminished by Brexit. Um, many folks in the UN have sort of suggested that Brexit has already, um, to some extent, taken place because the uh, the FCO and the Cabinet Office and a variety of other uh, large ministries don't seem particularly interested in, in seeing these areas. Um, if you like, as conduits to British power, soft or hard. And right. I think a nice example of this is the failure to re-elect re a judge on the ICJ, the International um, criminal um, justice. Is that important, I, having a judge on the ICJ? I think it is because uh, they have, we've had, the Brits have had a judge there since 1946 right. and the failure to re-elect um, a, a judge to support the overarching objective of the rule of law you know, a rules-based community, a rules-based global structure of which the United Nations is absolutely at the heart and the European Union, a very nice, you know, uh, projector of those same sorts of norms and values, um, seems at odds with the global Britain philosophy of trying to continue to support the rules-based structure. Mm. So something uh, is out of joint there. The, the Brits need to, I think, recommit to all of the very good work that they have done, I'm, cer I'm certainly not suggesting that they're, they're, they're undermining their long-term commitment to multilateralism. But at this point, there's a slight paradox of global Britain. They're talking about, you know, mm. untrammeled horizons at the same time, yeah. but very much pulling up the, the, the drawbridge at, um, on the other and sort of looking after their own, their own interests. I don't think you can have both. So my, I think my suggestion would be to try to articulate a bit more what does global Britain mean relative to specific multilateral centres like the European Union, more broad multilateral centres like, like the United Nations, um, and really get it together and whether, where there are opportunities, i.e. with a British judge, to, to make Britain's voice in the, in the post-Brexit world heard mm. in a way that is continuous, consistent and trustworthy. You know, don't, don't miss those chances as they so clearly did in 2017. Yeah. I think we're all going to have to buy new atlases to find to locate these untrammeled horizons <laughs> next door to these uh, sunlit uplands. Yes, um, you, it's going to be my final question, Amelia. You touched on um, soft power just now. I mean, a two-part question. To what, it, to what are the current uh, elements or you know, components of the UK's soft power armory that it can still be use in this potential post-Brexit world and where and whether where are the areas including public diplomacy obviously where they're going to have to quite radically change the, the way of doing business. It's great I think something that, that, that Britain kind of forgets is is the very robust spectrum it has of hard and soft power and I think in, in trying to sort of recalibrate the potential of, of, of what they've lost with the European Union by saying oh, we're not going to be working on CSDP. There's been a slight um, sort of unintentional forgetting, if you like, of all of the great stuff that, that Britain does um, in terms of soft power, uh, whether it's um, you know the BBC, for example, uh, yeah. World Service, um, or British higher education, you know, which, and I speak on behalf of a, you know, a sector that yeah, I have yes, a, yeah. a deep affection for, obviously, um, that still has enormous clout. I mean, people want to come from all over the world, mm. um, students, but, but citizens as well, to come 
talent to, to live and to study and to work you know in the British economy in the British higher education sector so I think that's that's really um, of, of huge importance I think the fact that Britain continues to be seen as the sort of you know the, the, the globalizing heartland mm. um, possibly f- moving faster a little bit more nimble if you like than its yeah. European counterparts I mean that's that's very much still to to play for okay. um, and also we get the gateway it, it mustn't really ever lose the fact that it's the soft power gateway to to the European Union and whatever kind of structure and relationship they craft post Brexit, if Brexit there be, um, if they if they have a tightly shut door, so goes the rest of the world. Um, that that exquisite ability to 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 be a gateway um, is in, is entirely in their hands at this point. So if they make a good progressive um, um, relationship with the European Union, they'll benefit. The European Union will benefit, and the the rest of the world will. But if they have a slightly parsimonious relationship with the EU, mm. everybody's going to suffer. Well, we have to leave it there. Amelia Hatfield, thank you very much for your time. Thank you.